Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this active little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Ethan Smith. Now, if you know Ethan like I know Ethan, you'll know him as that jokey, good-natured guy working at the ferry terminal you see when you go to leave the island. Today, we're going to get to find out a lot more about Ethan. We're going to get to hear stories from Ethan about working at the Empress Hotel in Victoria. We're going to get to hear about the time he spent living and working in Banff. We're going to get to hear him speak about his love of competitive cycling. We're also going to get to hear him speak about a book that he co-authored a number of years ago, which I found super fascinating to hear about. Now, before we start the podcast, if you happen to be an avid listener of this show, First of all, thank you. And second of all, you may have noticed that there's been a long gap in between episodes. And that's because I just wanted to take a little bit of a break from uh, putting out all these shows back to back. But I think that break is over with now and I'm back on track. So hopefully if everything winds up working out the way I plan, you can expect to see episodes coming out once every 10 days or so. So look out for that. All right, that's it for the intro. Now here is my interview with Ethan Smith. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Right on. How are you feeling right now? I feel fantastic, man. How do you feel? I feel good. Actually, I was uh, not feeling super great earlier today, but whatever that is passed and uh, feeling better now on this smoky summer evening. Okay, so let's uh, let's jump right into the first traditional question we always do on this podcast. And if you're ready for it, what brought you to Pender Island? Well, Chris, I, I think it was the Queen of Cumberland. I remember standing at the bow of the ship and uh, watching us approach Pender Island. And I thought to myself, this, this can't be right. There's, there's nothing here. Yes, I was going for a job interview at Poets Cove Resort. Uh, Poets Cove was brand new at the time, just being rebuilt from the old Bedwell Harbor Resort. And we were sort of interested in trying out life on a Gulf Island. So I had sent off my resume. The resort was very interested in the fact that I had experience with uh, the Empress Hotel in Victoria. So I went over for an interview and uh, made my way all the way down to Poets Cove and uh, met the folks down there. And the first thing they asked me was, uh, so you worked at the Empress Hotel? And I was like, yeah. And I've got, I did some other things too. I was actually only there for a year. And they were like, uh, no, really, we're only interested in hearing about the Empress. So I was like, well, okay. But, uh, you know, I would, again, it was only a year and I've got some other things on my resume. And they were more or less like, can you start Tuesday? And that was basically what brought us here. Okay, so a job at Poets Cove. And so you worked at the Empress before that. So you were living in Victoria during that time? Well, we had been living in Victoria, my wife and I. And um, I do need to just interject here for a moment that my wife has asked that I don't discuss her during the interview. She gets a little concerned about what I say when I have an audience. So all I do want to say is during this interview, I'll probably say we and us often. And when I say that, Within that we and us is this lovely woman who I've shared the past 18 years and counting of my life with. Thank God. And love, I won't say anything more about you. Anyway, we were living in Victoria. We got married. We went on an extended honeymoon. And when we got back, we weren't sure what we were going to do. We weren't working. 
So we threw out a couple of resumes, one of which was to Poets Cove. And like I said, uh, I got a pretty fast response to that. So I started the job rather suddenly. And uh, Tanya came within the week. And uh, we rented a place on Pinder. And uh, yeah, we, were, we wound up being there for almost two years before okay. moving deeper into the community. All right. And what, uh, what year was this in? 2003, 15 years ago. All right. So when you went for the job interview, that was your first ever time being to Pender Island? It was totally the first time on Pender Island. Yeah. And it did. It was just overgrown with trees. I'd only ever met one person had ever been to Pender before, and he didn't actually sell it very well. So uh, I was a little trepidatious, but it, uh, yeah, in the, in the long run, it worked out. Okay. Right on. And so when you said you lived in your first place for two years, uh, what part of the island was that on? We were actually uh, renting nearby here on uh, Captain's Crescent. Okay. And then while we were there, we found the property and uh, that we now live on, fell in love with it and uh, decided to buy it and build a house and have a baby and do all that grown up stuff. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's lead right into building a house because I, I know that that was a, a huge endeavor that uh, you had in your life. And maybe if you want to talk about that a little bit, because I always, I'm kind of fascinated by people who do that because uh, it's something I would never personally take on and I'm blown away that people do it. So what was the driving force in uh, building your house and how did the experience go? I'm not sure what the driving force was, except that I seem to only really be very happy when I'm doing really difficult things and um, pushing myself to my limits. So we took a bunch of books out of the library on building and decided what we wanted to do. I had never built anything before. So I thought, well, how hard can this be, really? <laughs> we brought a bunch of library books. We talked to a bunch of builders and a lot of beautiful picture books with lots of natural building techniques in them. So we looked at cob, we looked at straw, bale, rammed earth, light clay, which is wood chips and clay. We settled on wood chips and clay because they were ingredients that we had here in abundance on Pinder, both of those items. We also had lots of trees around to use as a timber frame structure. So again, we decided how hard can this be? And we dived in and it uh, took us about seven years. And uh, I would say it was sort of like a PhD course in carpentry. Fortunately, there were a lot of wise people around here who were able to hold my hand a lot and um, helped me and a building inspection team that kept me honest all the way along the line. So yeah, it was a it was a epic job, but uh, now it feels pretty wonderful. Okay, right on. And so how long has it been since the house has been completed? About six years, although some would say that it's not really completed yet. There's still some, you know, red tuck tape here and there that I haven't put molding on. But uh, yeah, just haven't found the time to do that. Yeah, fair enough. So in terms of building your own house and uh, figuring out a design, what is it about your home that uh, you really enjoy the most? What is the feature about it that you're, that you're really excited to experience every day? Oh, man, Chris, I'll tell you right now is the most obvious because we've had quite a, a hot month and the thick clay walls that we have keep it really, really cool. So um, you can open the windows overnight, let a cool breeze blow through, and then you close the windows and the house actually stays the same temperature all day long, no matter how hot it is outside. No air conditioning, no outside services or anything happening. It just stays nice and cool all the time during the day, which is really welcome. Feels perfect. That's great. That's great. And, you know, you talk about doing alternative building, you know, would you imagine yourself doing that if you're not living on Pender, like in your in your life experience leading up to this? Or was the alternative building something that came about because of your time on the island? I'd say it was pretty impulsive, actually. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And and I really didn't have experience at it at all. We um, I took a timber framing course to help me learn. And uh, yeah, well, I asked a lot of questions of a lot of people and I can't can't count the number of uh, builders 
on this island who uh, spent time with me and, and taught me things. All right. Okay, well, we're just going to back it up a little bit here uh, and move back into, I guess, let's talk about maybe your earlier years and, you know, something that you sent in an email when I asked you to send some information about uh, your life and things you want to talk about. Competitive running came up. Yeah, I I had sort of a, an eccentric childhood, I guess, in that I um, grew up out in a remote valley. There was no electricity. There were very few other kids around. We worked hard on our farm. It was fairly self-sufficient. And it was sort of a pioneering lifestyle and often difficult and, and challenging. But for a young kid growing up, I, I sort of needed an outlet. And a lot of that I found just by being out in the woods by myself. And then it started by going for long walks and then eventually running. And I got really got into that. And um, we also did some cross-country skiing, my sister and I, and started racing, cross-country ski racing, and uh, um, did quite a bit of that. As time went by, I got more and more into the running. So I was kind of doing it all the time and training and going to a lot of events, especially once I had a driver's license and could actually go to them. And I found a lot of peace in there. It, it became sort of, um, I guess it became my, my form of meditation where all of the worries I had, all the sort of angst about childhood and where my life would take me and stuff, all of that just fell away when I was pushing myself hard, when I was actually out there running for hours, it would fall away, the thoughts would fall away, and I'd find myself sort of uh, just sort of running easily in the space around the thoughts. And I could see my spot, my thoughts around the periphery, but I didn't have to pay any attention to them. And that's actually persisted through my life uh, with running. Um, after a couple injuries, it turned into mountain biking and then road biking. And that continues to today, as a lot of people know, because they hear me talk about it all the time, that I'm always cycling. And a lot of Penderites have kindly avoided running over me on the road. They see me all the time, but they very courteously go around me because they know I'm just out there doing my thing. And boy, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's nice not to get run over when you're on your bike. It sure is. All right. Good yeah. job, Pender drivers. <laughs> Well, where whereabouts was this? Was this in BC that you grew up, or yeah, it was it was in the West Coonies. So we um, used to do a lot of cross cross country skiing out in this valley, and the running is where I do my training. And then we'd travel around to different races and such too. And um, it became that there was a few of us who would go on these usually ten kilometer races, and I went on a bunch of them. And then after I left left home, I was in college in Ottawa, and I was in a racing series there. So I would do a ten kilometer race every week. And this was when I was about 19 or something. So for, for a while there, I got, I got fairly fast and fairly good, pretty good at it because I was doing it quite seriously. And I ran the uh, Ottawa Marathon twice. So, and I kept doing that. And then I started cycling more, doing the cycle, biking legs of uh, triathlons. And then when I eventually started playing in the Rockies, I moved out to the Rocky Mountains and um, I mountain bike there all the time. I mountain bike there for about 13 years okay. a lot and skiing as well. And then, like I say, I eventually moved into road biking. You know, it's interesting because you say the West Kootenays and you spent a lot of time running in the woods by yourself. I did. Well, we had lots and lots of logging roads and old dirt roads and stuff. And we'd go for these long runs. So yeah. did you run into much wildlife while you were doing that? or? Oh, yeah. Out there, wildlife was just a norm. We had uh, we had an apple orchard and there were bears around and stuff. But I don't think I knew it was dangerous at the time. Nobody told me. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, like it's so safe on Pender here. There's no predators or anything. And the idea of spending hours and hours and hours of your childhood running through the woods is actually kind of amazing, right? And like, especially in, in that 
condition. Yeah, that's really neat because uh, I, I would be a little afraid of uh, cougars and bears out there, I think, personally. Yeah, that was more of an issue when I lived in the Rockies because then there really were cougars and really big bears. <laughs> so that was a little bit of a different risk there. But uh, yeah, not, not so much in my childhood. I, I never really felt a big danger from the wildlife there. Okay. And so when you were in Ottawa, you said you did 10-kilometer uh, races every week. Yeah. Yeah, I did that for two or three years, I guess, where, yeah, it was it was weekly, so... It was, it was good. It was a, it was a fun run. <laughs> cool. Right on. Yeah. And two marathons. And two marathons. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Nice. Although, it, although it has to be said, the first marathon I did, I uh, ran when my shoes were far too new. And um, at about with five kilometers left in the marathon, the ambulance had to pull me off of the course because I was bleeding through my shoes. What? So then I was determined to go out next year and do well, which I did. That that becomes part of the whole endurance thing too. You got to learn to let your shoes break in before you do a big ride. Yeah, big run. <laughs> <laughs> I broke them in with blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go to Ottawa and uh, you go to college, and then in college you went for broadcasting. I sure did. Yeah, I was. Uh, we had a really good uh, radio broadcasting program there, and I was the morning man on the radio station. And they had we had three different campuses, so it was really super fun. I was. Uh, I was really attracted to the show WKRP in Cincinnati, yeah. which is one of the reasons I chose broadcasting because I wanted to be Dr. Johnny Fever. Who didn't? And I didn't know at the time that that wasn't really what it was like. Nobody told me that either. So when I got into the media and the real world, when they were like scripting my jokes for me and things, it was a little bit different for me, a little bit disappointing. But anyway, we'll talk about that after. But yeah, so I went to broadcasting college and uh, that was really a hoot. It was a, a lot of fun. So I spent all of my days in school meeting lots of people, lots of connections. I interned at a radio station in Ottawa, which was great, had a big audience and was really a lot of fun. Yeah. And then at the same time, I was running all the time, running and cycling all the time. So it was, it was good times. Okay. So you say they scripted your jokes for you? When I got out in the real world, I don't, I don't want to criticize anyone in particular, but there was a lot of disappointments in, uh, in the media industry. I, I didn't like how I didn't like how the media would pick on people and uh, try to exploit bad news and, and make a really big story out of it and always be hunting, hunting sensational stuff. So, you know, that's, that's one reason I decided not to stay with the industry. And, you know, part of it might have just been my natural talent, too. I'm, I'm comfortable behind a mic, but I don't have a great I don't have a great radio voice. So at the best of times, my voice is kind of high and nasal and recognizable and uh, sounds like I've hopped up on coffee, which often I'm not. So it's like I didn't stay with it. It didn't feel like the fit after a while. It was time for a change. So I left it. OK, well, how long did you do that for? Al? Um, well, I guess I was the morning man in the radio station there for a couple of years and then uh, part of a year for the station in Ottawa, and then I guess another year out in the West Kootenays. I had a big choice to make. I had job opportunities in the West Kootenays where I grew up or in Port Hawkesbury, Nova Scotia. Both places told me that they would give me a trial, and I couldn't go and test both of them out. I didn't really have any money. I scraped together enough money for a Greyhound ticket. At the time, it was only $99 across the country for Greyhound. And I chose to come back home to the West Kootenays. And, uh, you know, it was either the right decision or it wasn't. Things may have gone completely different if I'd gone to Port Hawkesbury. I might still be in the industry. Who knows? Hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm pretty happy about the way my life has turned out. So no regrets. Nice. What community in the West Kootenays was it? Uh, well, it was a network station that goes right through the West Kootenays. I was actually behind a mic in Trail, BC. Oh, okay. Trail. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So from Trail BC, shortly after that, I guess you made your way up to Banff. Is that correct? First to Calgary. And uh, then I did a whole bunch of different jobs and flipped around for a little while. 
And uh, I really caught an acting bug and I got into acting, first of all, just for theater. And then I started to make a little money at it. So I decided just to stay with that. And I started doing lots of acting and got myself a, an agent and stuff. And uh, yeah, I got a, a gig as a regular extra on a TV show called Lonesome Dove. And I did a full year of that. So I never had a speaking part in there, but I just got to walk around in the background in the show and be background. That was the name of my character is background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a few of us with the same name. It was funny. So, uh, yeah, so I did that for a while. And um, the weirdest job I had through acting in Calgary was actually as a medical test patient for the emergency room at the Foothills Hospital. So the doctors who are in an emergency room, a big city emergency room, have to stay on their toes all the time. So a team of instructors would teach me how to respond to different injuries or illnesses, and they would bring me in on a, on a stretcher or what have you into the emergency room, and the doctors would respond to me, and people who were inspecting them would tell them if they were making mistakes or what have you. So I had to act at all these maladies. It was very strange. Sometimes I would feel ill after it just because I was being poked and prodded all the times. But sometimes it was really fun. It was be like I'd have a, a big bone sticking out of my neck or my leg or something and have all this fake blood on me. No way. Okay, so, so they would put fake blood on oh, you. Oh, yeah, big time. Huge makeup. So I'd, I'd walk out of there like dripping with blood and looking horrible or like with an arm hanging off of me. <laughs> and I'd walk into the coffee shop across the street from the hospital. They caught on to this for a while, but for a while they didn't. They just thought I was some horrible wounded person walking in. And I'd see like the, the poor, you know, barista there trying to be nice to me while gagging. <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, so what are you doing later? <laughs> Which never worked, funny enough. But uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of fun. But um, it was spotty income. And I tried really hard to support myself at acting. And I did, a, I did a lot of it. But like a lot of actors, I hit rock bottom a couple times too. I, I'm not afraid to admit I used a food bank a couple times because I had to. And uh, yeah, it was for a while there, it was, it was pretty tough. During this whole time, I spent almost all my free time in Banff, camping, hiking, biking all the time and skiing. And it was pretty much it was every spare moment I had. So I actually went and saw a career counselor and she was awesome. I highly recommend this to anybody to find a good career counselor and go talk to them because she was fantastic. And she asked me just the right questions. I told her that, you know, I'm not really succeeding at acting and I don't know that I want to keep, you know, doing this lifestyle. And she's like, what do you like doing the most? And I said, I like playing in the Rockies. And she's like, well, why don't you go live there? And I'm like, oh, you can't get jobs there. And she's like, have you tried? And I was like, uh, no. And she's like, just go. And I'm like, well, I can't just go. And she's like, just go. So I did. I just went up to the Rockies and I had a job within a couple of days and a home. And it worked out really well. I worked my way right up into a supervisory role for a tourism company. And uh, yeah, it, it actually worked out great. Okay. So what age was that at? <laughs> my late 20s. Late 20s. Yeah. Okay. So some time doing broadcasting in Ottawa and then eventually and then, West Coast. And then acting and flipping around for a few, several years. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's really interesting, right? That sounds like a pretty fun, like a uh, decade of your twenties. Yeah. It was chaotic. There was a lot of self-destructive behavior, but it was a lot of fun adventure too. Yeah. Well, I think a little bit of self-destructive behavior is what, uh, what should happen to us in our twenties. It's time oh, yeah. for experimenting and it gives us something to chuckle about when we're 50. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. It's yeah. actually, it's funny, I guess, like through this and other avenues, talking to people in their sixties and them describing experiences that they had in the sixties for some of them. And it, it's kind of amazing to hear people reflecting back on 
what their youths and childhoods were like and like it's no big deal anymore you know what i mean and it's just have a have a bit of a laugh about it but at the time it was probably like really like intense obviously like oh man right? yeah everything's huge back then yeah yeah and now it's a lot of it seems kind of laughable and in some of the details become fuzzy for me too. So I have to put certain details in to make the story work. But I also feel like, you know, you, you can't, you can't ever let truth get in the way of a good story. So I let my mind wander and it's like, yeah, I, I think this is the details as best as I possibly can and then tell the story. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I've gotten so hung up on telling stories to like, they have to be so truthful. They have to be like as truthful as possible. And I'm starting to let that slip just in the last like couple of weeks. I've made a decision. I'm like, ah, whatever. Yeah. I'll just fill in a couple of details here and there. I, who's going to remember? I don't know if I remember. Wait but. till you hit 50, Chris. And then at that point, you can just give yourself completely. It's just like, you know what? I've done my time. I'm halfway there. I can say whatever I want. You know? <laughs> the brain cells aren't there anymore. I can think about it as much as I want. That, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So you're in, you're in Banff. You're in the Rockies. Uh, you, you've got some work. And how long did it take for you to really feel like, okay, this is my dream right now. I'm, I'm living in my dream. Or was it you were living in your dream right now? Like, how were you feeling during those first few years in Banff? I felt really good. It was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, I was earning money for like the first time in a decade and I was skiing and I was mountain biking. Um, the nature of Banff for any resort town is that they're very transient. So there's a lot of people coming and going all the time. So you make new friends in the summer and they leave in the fall. And that happened year after year after year. And that was, it was difficult for me. And I was also, you know, after, well, 13 years, I guess, of playing in the Rockies, I uh, felt like, you know, I, instead of being, I was no longer with a bunch of my tier, peers. I was out late drinking at night with a bunch of 20 year olds when I was 35. So that, that started feeling a little funny to me. Sure. Yeah. I can remember once this, uh, one, one girl saying to me that, uh, She'd introduced me to her sister and she was like, oh, my sister says you're pretty cute for an old guy. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm 30. (laughs) (laughs) How did that get old? (laughs) That's funny. I know. (laughs) So that was funny. But it just, I had spent a lot of time in uh, Victoria and on the West Coast and really loved it out here. And I'd made a conscious decision to move to the coast. So I sort of drew a line in the sand where it's like, okay, when I get to this stage, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to move. And um, I met my my future wife at the time, and um, I decided to stick with it and and move. And I really hope that she wanted to come along. And thank goodness she did. What so, was it about the West Coast that really made you want to move here? I really love the connection to the water. I like the the milder climates too. I would leave the cold snaps in Banff once I was able to afford an airplane ticket. I would like fly out for my holidays when it would be minus 30 out there and land at the Victoria airport and I could breathe and everything was green and I could go for a kayak ride or go for a bike ride. There's all these great biking trails around Victoria and it blew my mind that I was actually doing that in December. Cool. Yeah. So I just kind of, I love that. I love that climate and I love the fact that you could be outdoors doing things for, you know, year round and just, uh, yeah. So really, really liked it. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I'm just going to bring it back to the Empress for a second. You worked at the Empress and how was that? I don't think I've never known anybody else who's worked at the Empress before. How well, was- it was great. And it that's what got me from Banff out there. And I, I had met people out there and I was pretty sure that my industry connections could get me out there. So I went to them and said that I would love a job. 
And I wound up with a job there as an evening duty manager. So uh, the place is fantastic. It's absolutely steeped in history. And more so than any other tourism property I've ever seen, it, it belongs to the community. They take ownership in it. They like hanging out there. They like walking through their hotel. Uh, you better not tell anyone they don't belong there because they, they do. It's not a hoity-toity hotel where you can escort people out of there if they seem like they're don't belong there. They, they just do. Everybody's welcome there. People who are spending $400 a night or people who have just wandered in off the street and normally live in a box. Wow, really? Yeah. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild, but it also means a lot of things happen there. There's a lot of conferences. So when you're the evening duty manager, you're dealing with a lot of people who are attending a conference, a lot of people who have been imbibing in alcohol, a lot of people off the streets who have been drinking alcohol. Uh, in fact, alcohol was a real common theme where at, that, <laughs> at that job, unfortunately. So it was, it was sort of straining on me a bit doing that in the evenings. And I didn't know whether I'd stay in the industry or not, but I knew I needed a break. So we got married and then we went on a long road trip sort of around North America for about six months and just uh, traveled and, and camped and visited people. And that was really nice. And we got back to Victoria and I was like, we're going to stay here. We're going to try an island. And uh, again, this is when I put my resume in for Poets Cove and it got gobbled up. Okay. Well, we're we're going to get into the Pender talk here, but I didn't know about this 6-month road trip actually. So so wow, a 6-month road trip across North America. Yeah, we went I guess I shouldn't say North America cuz we didn't get into Mexico. But we the Canada and the states we did. We went down the west coast and then across to the Gulf of Mexico, as far south as uh, St. George's Island, I think it was called in Florida, and then back up the east coast in the Maritimes. My god, was it fun in the Maritimes. Okay, how come? It was fantastic. So we we started off in Antigonish at the Highland Games. And it was like a, I could be wrong here, but like a week-long event or something. And we camped out in a field with thousands of other people. And every night at the end of the Highland Games, there would be this 150 bagpipe salute. And then it would be followed by this wild Kaylee where you drank beer and danced your feet off until you dropped and crawled back to your tent, literally. The, those people were so welcoming and so much fun. It just blew my mind. Cool. I don't, I don't know how that place can be I don't know how the Maritimes can be so hard up financially because I think they should be rocking it for ecotourism and for culture. It's really pretty amazing. So then after that, we came all the way back across Canada, visited family and friends and traveled all the way back to Victoria. Wow. Yeah. Six months though. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So you come back from that trip, you eventually moved to Pender and you talked about Poets Cove. And for people who uh, don't live on Pender Island or are unfamiliar with Poets Cove, it's a uh, resort on the South Island and uh, it's a very swanky place that opened up. And sorry, you started working there just as it opened? Yeah, it had been Bedwell Harbor Resort. And uh, there were five fellows from Alberta who spent a lot of time in Bedwell Harbor Resort and pulled together the money and bought it for themselves and then uh, created Poets Cove Resort. So I don't know, they probably were the owners for eight or 10 years, I want to say, and then they sold it to the current owners. But they, so it's a totally different management team, different um, owners and management entirely than it was when, when I joined there. Yeah. Okay. And so you worked there for a brief period of time and something interesting I wanted to talk about, about uh, yourself and is uh, different kinds of jobs you've had on the island. And one in particular that I really want to hear about is uh, you working for the uh, parks. Yeah. Yeah. I went from Poets Cove to um, actually drove the Pender Freight Truck for a little bit and then Talisman Books and uh, then the Parks Commission doing the trail building and maintenance around the island and then eventually BC Ferries. But uh, yeah, so the, as far as the trail building was concerned, I guess I did that for three years. And Pender is just unbelievable as far as 
park trails are concerned. With beach accesses and little parks, there are a total of 81 designated parks and trails around the island. Actually, I think it's up to 82 now because, yeah, Ben's opened another trail up. So there's at least one more that I know of. But it's incredible. It's every, every you know, seems like every 100 meters or something, there's another marker post. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to rebuild some old ones and build a lot of new ones. And I was by no means a pioneer in that. There is some people um, on this island who are still here who did that for years before me. And some of those trails are really old. A lot of work's been put into them. Huge amount of effort in the park system here. It's very impressive. Okay. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago. And I think that you mentioned, you said that you built 12 new trails while you were doing the job? I believe it was 12. Yeah. So some of them would be very short. It would just be a little outlet with a a bench and a marker post and a, a path with an overlook. And then some were much more involved, like like the one at Abbott Park that I mentioned. The uh, yeah, you mentioned it in what, the end of one of your other interviews, and um, I I put a lot of time in on that one, and I really love it. It's it's probably my favorite just because uh, it required a lot of effort uh, with the uh, staircases and benches and table and what have you. Yeah, it's super steep. That was at the end of Brent Marsden's episode, and yeah, I, I hadn't been up there in maybe about two years or so, and it. Uh is a high point and it overlooks Buck Lake and the ocean. It, it kind of threw me for a loop, actually, when you told me that you did that trail, because I, I didn't even really think about how much work was involved in actually building the trail. I was more thinking about how much work it was involved just climbing it myself that day, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> let yeah. alone the, the work involved in it. But so it, that uh, is your favorite trail that you did. I sort of use it as a gym now. On my days in between my bike rides, I, I cross train by going up to Abbott Park. I like going up there really early in the morning when there's nobody else around. And there's just arbutus trees and, uh, you know, eagles and birds around and stuff. And uh, I work out up on the top of the there. And I have yet to see anybody else there. It's like a, still one of the best kept secrets. Maybe it won't be now. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty steep. Uh, people might try it out and quit halfway. I don't yeah. know. But it's uh it's an incredibly steep little spot but that's cool and so what are some of the other trails that uh you you did um well there's there's a number of them that, that probably eat up too much time in the interview to go on about too many of them but there, there's some nice ones ogden point um way way up at the top of the north end of the island there's a really nice overview trail over there a couple sweet little ones down on south pender and uh there's um, like one called Saturna View, which is a nice, just a little loop trail. And a lot of little extensions, like at the Enchanted Forest, I did one that goes from the Enchanted Forest out to the waterfall. And there's also another trail that goes up on a bluff there with a little bench and stuff. So, And uh, Greg Lucas helped me with a bunch of them as well. He and I uh, rebuilt the Ansia Road Ocean Access, which is a huge staircase. And uh, yeah, Greg works incredibly hard and is a lot of fun to work with. So he was, he was a blast to have along. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to have uh, Greg Lucas is a pretty awesome person. Yeah. 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 Good, good jokey individual. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's great. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting because when I'm on these trails and I have, have gone on them a lot, I rarely think about who or the work involved in doing them or just sort of blissed out enjoying the experience. But uh, I'll say thank you. Thank you for building some of those trails that we get to enjoy. Thank you. Actually, I think of it as a privilege. Like I, I wouldn't want to... Uh... I wouldn't want to toot my own horn too much about it because I, I feel like it was I was one of a whole lot of different builders who have worked on the trail systems now, and it really feels like an honor. And uh, one day, I was working on the the George Hill Trail, and I built a support rail around, and I poured some cement, and I lugged all the cement up the hill and poured it all. And then, but a, a local woman, she walked down, she said hi to me, and I walked down the trail, and she was going back up, and I didn't think much of it. And the next time I went up. 
she had done this beautiful little shell work where she imprinted, she made like a little mosaic in this fresh cement I just put in there. Right on. And and then I saw her at the ferry and I thanked her for doing that. So in a way, it's like, I think the trail building is almost like a community effort. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That's that's a sweet little story. Yeah. Nice. Cool. So you jumped out of that uh, career and then uh, where did you uh, land after that? Well, it was really, um, I was at Talisman Books for a bit. I met Barry Mathias when I first moved to the island and uh, really fell in love with him and his wife, Claire. They're really beautiful people and chatted with him in the bookstore several times. And he, of course, is very tied up with Solstice Theater and very busy. And he found out that I had done a lot of acting. So he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm directing a play um, in the spring called Under Milkwood, a Dylan Thomas play. And I've got three roles for you that I'd like you to do in it. And also, if, uh, you know, if you're ever interested in working in the bookstore, if you feel like this isn't really your thing at the resort, just saying, you can join me. I was interested. So I left the resort and came to work for them. Okay. So I did that for, for a while. It wasn't full time, but it was, it was enough time. And I was starting to build the house and uh, my wife had had our daughter. So it sort of worked with being able to spend some time with her too, but I needed more income on top of that. And I got the Parks Commission job, which was great. And uh, that was really able to help subsist me for a little while. Then got the, uh, yeah, eventually got the BC Ferries job. And that was 10 years ago. And that was very much on call for a long time. So I still had to piece together income for a very long time. But uh, yeah, it took took a while until it could finally be full-time in my my one gig. So I feel very blessed because I know that a lot of people on this island work very hard to make it work for their families and themselves here. And in fact, for a lot of them, they aren't able to. I'm sad that in this little community that prides itself on embracing everybody, that there are so many people who have come here and not been able to feel that or not been able to make it work out and they've left. And I feel like I've had to say goodbye to a lot of good people who have come and not been able to to make it work. And um, I feel really grateful to have one one of the few steady jobs on the island. Nice. That's really well put, you know, yeah. because I think that that's a pretty common story that all of us probably shared that we see a lot of people come and go. I know when my wife and I moved to the island in 2006, we were here for about five months through the winter and couldn't couldn't make it work. So we had to leave and uh, we came back about four years later when we were a little more financially established. And, um, you know, sometimes it works out for the best like that. But uh, yeah. I, I've seen some people who uh, haven't wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But anyway, so gratitude about having the job at BC Ferries. And I think a lot of people probably will recognize you, obviously, because we all come and go from this island as being a pretty uh, recognizable figure down at BC Ferries there. And we won't really touch on that too much. But just to get back into something you talked about, the uh, Solstice Theater and getting back into acting, how was uh, how was that first play? How did that go? Oh, it was it was a blast. It actually involved about 50 cast members. Like it was like half the island. It's incredible. We were able to get an audience at all. Actually, <laughs> there were so many people in it involving a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of grownups. And it was really neat because it was right near the beginning of our tenure on Pender. And we met so many people that I now still have that connection with. And we've done a lot of plays since then, which is really fun. And uh, Salsa Theater is great to be involved with. Some of them have just been a, a, just a riot. But That one stands out because it was the first here and because we made all of those initial contacts. And sometimes it's funny now it's like there's people I don't get to talk to very often, but I'll, I'll still see them and we just sort of, you know, share a little laugh or a moment because that situation, which is the case, as you know, with a lot of plays, it's, it's a lot of fun putting on a show for the community. 
Yeah, totally. I've done done a few plays and yeah. it's it's great. But how much does uh, being involved with the Solstice Theater mean to you? Because I, I know that when roles come up and I think this has happened at least once that they're, you know, struggling to find a male actor in there that you've uh, you've jumped in and and taken the part to, yeah. to help out, you know? Well, my favorite is just doing a short little bit part. So when we did uh, the play Office Hours and uh, I did a, a short scene in there with uh, Joyce Davis and it was it wasn't such a big role that it was like all time consuming for rehearsing and what have you, but it was just a ton of fun because it was just full on comedy and uh, just, just had a blast with it. And I like short, small roles like that. It's great to do a full length play where you have lots of lines and stuff too, but recently Crimes of the Heart this past year as well. That was a lot of fun just because I got to be a supporting actor to a team of really strong women. And that was just a blast. It was really fun working with them and not being one of the leads, but just coming in as a color character on the side was really, a, really a lot of fun. Right on. Yeah. So I'll, I'll keep on doing that from time to time, working full time and um, also, you know, uh, having ev- equal time for family and, and cycling, of course. I, I can't say yes to all of the acting roles or even, you know, audition for them, but... Uh, yeah, I'll just keep doing them once in a while for sure. Okay, so you mentioned cycling, and I was definitely going to go there. So let's <laughs> go there now because you have a race this weekend? Well, I do, yeah. Yeah, I won't get into the details of that too much, but the Tour de Victoria, I've been part of the event. It's a fantastic event that's put on by Ryder Hegedal, who is probably um, Canada's best-known cyclist and Olympian and, and Tour de France, what have you. He's just recently retired, so he puts a lot of effort into this big event in his hometown of Victoria every year, and uh, it's the sixth time in a row that I've done it, and... Uh, I get really excited about the event. Um, I like, I love traveling to events and, uh, I've gone to quite a few off island as well, but, uh, this one's just really fun and it's, it's great being local and knowing a, a whole lot of the writers and, and, uh, being part of it all is really a blast. Okay. Well, I want to delve into this a little bit because you are a competitive cyclist yeah. and let's hear about Ethan Smith, the competitive cyclist. Well, that, that ties right back to the childhood thing of, of finding my, my peace in endurance sports and, when I'm being competitive, it's a very much a friendly competition, but working with a Peloton um, when you're cycling. So a Peloton is when you have anywhere from, say, 10 to 100 people in a really tight cluster where your tires are literally only inches apart and you're traveling along between about 35 and 40 kilometers an hour. And you do this for a long time and you take turns pulling the other people along. So you're riding right behind one and then someone rides in front. So you take turns on the lead and it's really a team effort and it's really neat. Everybody has kind of the same mindset. You're all trying to do as well as you can and make no mistake. We are racing each other, but we're very supportive of each other. It's not like a group of pro cyclists where you might see, you know, nasty things to try to win or whatever. That's just very much working together as a team, but doing your best. And I get a heck of a rush out of it. It's when you have a I mean, sometimes it's thousands of people starting in one mass start and you hear everyone clicking in at the same time and switching into the gears. And then the sound, just the sound of the tires on the pavement. And there's usually loud rock music playing and stuff. It's a high that just lasts with me forever. It's so much fun. Right on. Well, okay. So when you say that you're all helping each other out, but you are racing at the same time. So how does that work in terms of the coordination of somebody understanding that it's their time to go in the front or somebody not taking that responsibility? Like what are the the social dynamics within that? If it's really good, uh, if you've ever stood on a, um, like a big sand flat and watch coastal seabirds flying together, those little tiny, like the pipers and stuff, the sandpipers where you'll have like 50 or a hundred birds really tight. And you wonder how they can all move together as once and they'll land and they'll go up and they'll zigzag around in the air, but always as a cohesive unit, all these little birds, it's something like that. Like it really feels like that to me. 
there often is no discussion at all. You just move through. There's a crack. You move through it. Then you're at the front. Then you drop back one and someone else takes the place. What happens competitive-wise is farther out, people get tired. So the stronger riders keep working their way up to the front. And then you only have a few left. So then you're kind of riding on your own or with a smaller pack as it goes along. But it's just fun. It's it's uh, you know it's it's sort of along the lines of team sports, except that it's all about the endurance. About it's about you're working together, but you're also pushing each pushing each other and yourself for a long, long time. And I just fall into sort of a meditative state with it, where it's just everything else just falls away. It's really neat. Nice. So even being in a tight cluster pack like that, you would even describe that in in that moment of competition and being inches away from other people's tires. Chris, you can't think of anything else when that's happening. So it's like, (laughs) there can't be any worries or anxieties. You're not going to think about unpaid bills or loans or anything like this or work. You're just, it's not going to come up because um, you have to stay so focused on the moment of where your tire is and the tires are around you. And you're going at that speed and there's metal all around you. You really have to stay just right there in the now. Yeah, that's great. I have such a hard time personally letting my awareness of time slip away. And when I am able to succeed in doing that, I feel as if that's one of the biggest successes in my life, right? And so what you're saying is that being in that moment of cycling and being in the present in terms of like our our normal awareness of time, that's gone. Yeah, it it really is. And I have to, I'm doing it for myself and I I don't want to look like a... um, like I'm just being some sort of a hot dog when I'm out on training runs or something, but it's uh, if I'm out there training really hard and I blow by a, you know, a mountain biker or someone, just a recreational rider, it's like what they're doing is just as good and just as important. And they're out there, they're being healthy, they're being active, and they're probably having a really good time. And that's their thing. My thing is to push myself as hard as I can. So if I go blasting by you on a trail, I'm still going to be friendly and say hi when I go by. It's not because I'm trying to win or beat you. It's because I'm trying to push myself as hard as possible because that's how I'm the happiest is when I'm pushing myself. That's great. Tell me about your bike. What uh, what kind of bike do you have? Um, I've got a specialized Roubaix. It's a carbon fiber bike. It's, it's pretty nice. As far as racing bikes are concerned, it's sort of middle of the road, but it's it's nice. It, uh, it, it works well for me. Okay, right on. Does it have a name? No. <laughs> <laughs> It's just part of me. It's just part of you. Yeah. Yeah. So when you click into your bike, you feel totally like it's part of you. Most of the time. Yeah. 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 It it, it does. It feels like an extension of me for sure. Right on. And and so this race coming up in Victoria, you said that this is going to be the sixth time you're participating in this one. Yeah. I've done different lengths. I've done the, the 145 version of it, the long, long distance three times. And then the last couple of years, I've done a shorter distance. This year, I'm doing 60 kilometers, which is... Not really very long. It's more just of a, a hard, fast ride. Okay, cool. Two hours. Nice. And then yeah. just last question about this, because I'm curious about your, uh, we talked briefly about this, and I just want to find out a little bit more about your your training regiment. Because uh, in terms of somebody who's a competitive cyclist, you said that there's an off season where you just don't cycle at all. Maybe just sort of describe what you, what you do for your training uh, leading into the season, during the season, and then uh, as the season's closing out. Okay, sure. Through through the winter, I um, when it's darker, one of my favorite things to do is just get up really early in the early hours when it's still dark with a flashlight, and I go for long walks. Don't usually use use the flashlight, you know, unless I hear something rustle in the woods next to me. And <laughs> turn on the flashlight. Of course, there's no predators here, so it's always a deer. It's, it's never anything but a deer. Yeah. But uh, I go for up around Road Lake or whatever. I'll sometimes just walk for hours. I love the early hours and. Uh, the rest of my family tend to sleep in more. So I'm usually home having a coffee before they get up. 
And it all feels really good. So I just do that a lot through the winter. And if it's a nice morning, I'll, you know, I'll ride out to work and stuff as well. And, uh, and uh, I go for a lot of just a lot of different recreational rides in the winter to keep the base going. And then in the spring, I just start building up and doing a lot of different stuff, which is probably just really boring for the, listener, the listeners to listen to. But I, I make myself a training schedule and uh, I try to set myself some goals for five big events for the year. And uh, I work towards each of those and try to do that as much as possible with a low impact on the family. They like to be involved to some extent, but they also don't want that to be all that we plan our life around, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's my happy place for sure. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing. Because I'm I'm impressed. I think it's pretty darn cool. And uh, the, the amount of effort that you put into it. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this beforehand. And it's uh, it's pretty cool, man. Thanks. I, I think it's great. It doesn't really benefit anybody but me, unless it inspires some people to go out and push themselves and try their own things. But I, I wouldn't expect everybody to try to be as much into competition as me. Cycling itself is a really, a really great activity. It's very low impact on the joints. And I think it's something that probably most people could do to feel uh, really healthy and alive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a recreational cyclist and I love cycling and it would never really cross my mind to do it competitively. But yeah, I've had some amazing times on my bike. And it's so funny how I think back to, oh yeah, I've been riding a bike since I was in the single digits age wise. And there is this fun playfulness that exists even at the age of 41, you know, jumping on a bike these days and feel like a bit of a kid. And yeah, I, I love being on a bike. It's great. Yeah. There are a lot of cyclists who are out there competing in these events up until their 80s. And uh, it's it's pretty impressive, but it's something you can just keep on doing. Nice. Inspiring. Yeah. All right. Well, let's lead into the second traditional question for this program, if you're ready for it, which of course is, who has given you help on Pender Island? Okay. Well, I did think about that question and uh, three people come to mind. So I'll touch on each of them. The first one, most importantly, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but he was uh, my neighbor, Barry Erno, who passed away last year. And uh, he was just a wonderful character and uh, taken from us far too young at only 59. And he um, he was just very much kind, very solid man who lived right next door and was building at the same time as me, but he had all the skills. And if you've ever seen the movie or the TV show, the, um, the tool man, Tim, the tool man, Taylor uh, with Tim Allen. Yeah. Home yeah. improvement. Yeah. He was totally my Wilson over the fence. Like literally he had a hat like that and he would talk to me all the time over the fence and we would talk all the time. And he was very, he, he helped me with so many things with building the house is unbelievable. It just, you know, personal things too, and gardening. And th he was always patient. I never saw him upset or, well, you know, fussed about anything. And, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, Really remarkable guy. So yeah, Barry Erno would be a huge thanks to him, even though he's not here anymore. Boy, he meant a lot to me. Cool. The second person would, would be another Barry, and that's Barry Mathias, who I mentioned before. Far beyond just giving me a job at Talisman and acting roles, he and his wife, Claire, were like adoptive grandparents to my daughter and to our family. In fact, they've just been a loving, strong source. And they're, Barry is... Um, He's very different than the other Barry. Instead of being very kind of quiet and, and stoic, he's, he's, he's feisty. He's fun. He is unafraid of confrontation. He fights the good fight. He is always up for a good cause. And I, I love being around him. He's actually taught me a lot. I really like, I like, I love his energy. He's got a great laugh too. He does. He isn't, doesn't he? He's boisterous, yeah. that laugh. He, he's fantastic. Yeah. 
Um, the other person, I think, from a parenting perspective that I really want to mention, because she's very important to us as well. Her daughter and uh, my daughter have been best of friends for many, many years. And my daughter is always welcome in their home and spends a huge amount of time there. Second to our home, she's there all the time. And the woman I want to thank is Karen Parker. She is a, a remarkable character who's done a lot for a lot of kids on the island and uh, is really, really very strong, neat soul, too. And she's always had a place in her heart and her home for my daughter. And that's really important. So big thanks to Karen for that. What exactly has uh, Karen done that's been so helpful? Well, Karen is a former educator herself, and she does a lot of programs uh, for kids on the island. She homeschooled her own kids, and uh, she now runs the Epicenter, which was formerly the playgroup on the island. She runs the programs there. And every time that my daughter has spent time in her house, she's not only um, just there visiting her daughter. Karen really, she's always leading projects, and she leads games, and she always has activities and uh, she's very much a hands-on parent all the time. And she, uh, I think she's quite inspiring to all the, the kids who hang out around her. Okay, cool. Good to know. That's interesting. It's great for me, too, because I get to learn about uh, other people, even potential guests, perhaps, right? Like, and get to know a little bit about people's backgrounds through guests answering these questions. So thanks for doing that. But so Barry, Barry and Karen seem as if the common thread I'm sort of picking up on that is that uh, they've uh, really helped uh, your family. They, they have. There, there's so many more. Um, like your your guest Brent Marsden, I, he was a huge help in building a house. My God, and and so many other people. But uh, I just, you know, I, I can't. I'm not going to name everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. And just for people listening as well, too. The 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 reason that I asked this question is, I think it's really interesting to show the threads that exist within our community, and it's interesting to see the connections that people have because uh, just the answer that you gave right now, Ethan, with those three people, I didn't know that those three people, and including Brent Marsden, who you just mentioned as well, too, didn't have a helpful impact in your life. And I think it's a it's a beautiful thing to hear and to uh, recognize, you know. And and also, a lot of previous guests have said there's just too many people to mention, which really surprised me early on because I came to realize, wow, there is a big support network on this island that you you might not notice is there <laughs> if you're not looking for it or if you're on the, the fringe of things. But um, yeah, it's really cool to hear about people who have given you help along the way. But uh, all right, excellent. Something else that I wanted to ask you about as well, too, was a book that you wrote uh, a few years ago and just want to hear you uh, talk about that for a little bit yeah for sure it uh it was the the timing of it was a little difficult because it was right at the same time as we're building our house and it just had a daughter but uh, i had self-published a book which gained enough interest to um, give me a publishing offer for a much bigger project the book that i wrote touched on animals and the environment a lot the person who would wind up being my co-author for this next book for the published book um, guy doncy who's a, a environmentalist and a, an author living in victoria he contacted me and said that his publisher would definitely write a book if i wrote one about animal welfare I thought about it and I thought, well, sure. I mean, it's always been a dream to be a published author. Why why not give it a shot? So the publisher said, well, we could probably do it. Um, are you going to attach a big name to it? And I thought to myself and I said, what's the biggest name in animal welfare I can think of? And I said, yes, Jane Goodall. And they're like, do you know her? And I said, no. And they said, are you going to get her for the book? And I said, yes. And I did. So Jane Goodall wrote the foreword to the book. And I wound up with this three-year journey at the same time as building a house and being a, a new dad and <laughs> relatively new husband for that matter. And this book was huge. It became an enormous project. It was called Building an Ark, 101 Solutions to Animal Suffering. And the upside of it was I 
went on this amazing journey and had all kinds of doors open to me. The downside of it was I had to be an activist and I, I detest being an activist. I'm terrible at it. I'm not good at particularly good at self-promotion and I wasn't good at pushing this cause. So I had a publisher and I had a publicist and I was being interviewed all over the place. I got to go on some national radio shows and uh, did interviews all over, but it was challenging for me. It was very rewarding and also a, a lot of a lot of challenge. And there came a time when I told my publicist, I'm done. And it was successful in that it got a lot of people thinking about maybe living in more reverence with animals. And I wasn't interested in just throwing factory farming in people's faces. I wanted people to live in more reverence to all life around them, which means wildlife and farm animals and everything. It, it doesn't necessarily mean a vegan lifestyle, although I think Ideally, that's a fantastic thing for anyone to strive for because it's the lowest possible impact. It's not no impact. There's impact in everything we do. That, that's inevitable, but it's the lowest possible. But again, I wasn't, I didn't want to be the king of vegans, although I was kind of thrust into that role for a little while. And I went around and did lots of lectures and uh, people wanted to ask me lots of graphic questions about factory farming and things. And that wasn't really my thing. There's other people who are much better at preaching that gospel than I am. Eventually, I decided that, that I'd gone as far as I wanted to go with that. And the publisher stopped backing it. But it did do very well for a while. And it won um, it won an award. It got a Silver Nautilus Award for books that changed the world. That was back in 2008, I guess. And uh, yeah, it, it did pretty well for a few years. It probably would have done a lot better if I was actually any kind of an activist and went out there and, and uh, you know sold the cause some more. But uh, it was very rewarding. It also burnt me out. So I frequently get people asking me now because every, a lot of people identify with me as a writer, but I haven't really written anything other than just for fun here and there on the side for years now. And I don't really feel like it right now. I guess that part of me is just sort of on a shelf for the time being. But it is funny when people say, have you been writing a lot? I right away think writing, cycling, right? So I right away think that's, yeah, oh, yeah, man, tons. And they're like, oh, great. What are, you, what are you working on? It's like, well, I got this event coming up and they're like scratching their heads. <laughs> that's funny. But no, I've been, I've been writing, not writing. And it seems to make me a lot happier, even though I'm, I'm not changing the world by doing it. But, you know, it, it still it still feels important to me. I, I still I would love people to care more about the world around them, about uh, animals. And I don't just mean that with a, you know, a broad uh, brushstroke. I mean, really, really caring and being, and, you know, being kind to all species of life, people and animals around them just to just to appreciate life more. And, uh, you know, the environment is kind of a, a fragile place. So we, we do need to take care of it. You know, I'm a, I'm a longtime Rolling Stones fan, and I sometimes think to myself, you know, after I'm gone, we really have to think about the world we're leaving behind for Keith Richards. Yeah, for sure. So it's important. <clears throat> Keith's going to be going for uh, another couple centuries, I think. <laughs> That's at, right. Uh, at this rate. Yeah. And, yeah. Soon to be uh, the president, maybe. <laughs> Here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've done a bit of writing. Now, I haven't written a book. That just seems like such a daunting thing to me. But so three years you worked on this project for... I did, yeah. I mean, just with the nature of it, I, I had to make sure it had scientific facts backing it up, and I had to make sure every source I used was really well tested out. And um, I had a lot of people like the, you know, the World Wildlife Federation and all of these different groups, the Jane Goodall Institute, and lots of people working with me. So sometimes it took a while to get information from large groups to to get things out there and to get photographs and to have all my facts checked and things edited and what have you. So yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty big project for sure. Was there any tangible way that you would say your life changed from writing that book? 
I'm sure I grew through the process. It would be hard for me to identify exactly what it was, but I, I learned some things about myself too. I thought that if I published a book and was out there giving lectures and, and talking to you know a room full of a couple hundred people, that I would really thrive on that. Um, I didn't at all. There was one. There was one that comes to mind where I was at uh, a organization in Vancouver that invited me over, and they had several hundred people in this hall. And I had a slideshow and a lecture and a big stack of books on the table. It went very well. And everyone came up and shook my hand and thanked me for coming in. They were very nice. And then they're all leaving. And the host of the show came and said, they're not buying your books. And I was like, oh, that's, it's okay. You know, dude, they, they, they listened. And he was like, oh, and he grabbed a handful of my books and he went out the door and he forced everyone to buy them on their way out the door. Wow. But I can't sell. <laughs> and he could. So, I mean, I realized at that point, it's like, I'm not really going to succeed at this. Yeah, because I guess the whole point wasn't necessarily to sell books. It was more to make people aware of uh, the circumstances of a reality, let's say, right? I like like helping people laugh and be inspired, but I don't want to give them negative stuff. One one person I give a plug to is is um, David Boyd, who is an incredible author and friend of mine and lives here on the island. I think everybody knows, but he is an eternal optimist. He knows all of the negative points about what we're doing to the environment and animals and what have you, but he always spins it positively. He gives people hope. He makes you walk out of the room, you know, wanting to do something positive. When I listen to him talk, it's just like, man, you got it. You got it. That's right on. It's not something that's in my wheelhouse. It's in his. Yeah. That's why I just saw David yesterday and we had a really brief interaction and uh, both had to go. But I asked him what, what was happening. He's like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm wor- I can't wait to tell you about this new thing I'm working on. And uh, it's probably about saving the planet, you know. But you were saying that the book that you did was, wasn't necessarily about like sensationalizing things. It was more just about giving a broader perspective of... That, uh, that's what I was aiming for. There were there was a lot of um, pretty hardline activists around North America who really criticized it heavily because I didn't go far enough. Oh. But I was trying to do something, something completely different with it. So I, I hope I succeeded. I, I know a lot of people who did tell me that they were touched by it. When I say I, I actually mean we, because I had myself and Guy Doncey, my co-author, and uh, some probably, oh, geez, um, probably close to 20 uh, nonprofit organizations who were helping me with the project. Wow. And I had an advisory team of 17 or 20 people. Wow. So really, there was, a, there was a lot of us working on it. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a huge curve. For me to be the person who was orchestrating it, that was that was really hard. Okay. All right. Okay. So we're coming up on the end of the time here. And I just wanted to bring it back to talking about running again, something that you mentioned at the very beginning that you did in your childhood and uh, just wanted to hear uh, perhaps what caused you to stop running and uh, maybe just speak to that for a little bit. Sure. Um, it was sort of a series of injuries. I was doing a number of different things at a time. I was I was uh, playing a lot of baseball as well, and I was a catcher when I was playing baseball. So it was pretty hard on the knees. So between that and running, I wound up having a couple of knee injuries and found it pretty hard to do any impact loading after I had two surgeries. So uh, after getting that done, it was pretty difficult to keep on running. And uh, I started switching to mountain biking at that time. And then I took a bit of a tumble and um, actually ruptured a disc in my back. So I had major back surgery in 1994. And I was told at that time that I would never be able to do any impact loading activity ever again. So um, that was actually, it was it was close to the time where I, I started getting into acting and writing and stuff because I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to be an athlete. So um, I better have some kind of creative pursuit. 
But um, I persevered and I made some adjustments and I, I just was pretty much exclusively cycling. I let go of running altogether and uh, I had to stop being a catcher <laughs> and uh, I had to stop any kind of distance running. But it really worked. And once I was up in Banff, I found a way to have a balance and I could, I could meter my body. And I was like, my body's getting stronger. When I was building the house, I stopped all that other stuff because my love of endurance sports went into the house. Uh, that became my endurance events. I was, I was there for many hours in a row, just, you know, chiseling out mortise and tenons on the timber frame and many, many hours pouring rain. That, that was definitely my endurance event. And I had thought at that time that my years of athletics were probably done of endurance sports, but I got on my bike one day and it felt wonderful. And I realized I'd gotten kind of out of shape. So I uh, signed up for an event the following summer which was the first tour to Victoria that I did. And I lost 35 pounds and I trained and I trained and I trained. And the day of the event, it was pouring rain, 70 kilometer an hour winds. I uh, rode a, just a department store mountain bike in it because I didn't have my racing bike yet. And I managed to finish in the middle of the pack and uh, there were happy tears of joy when I, when I crossed the finish line. It was really wonderful. So uh, no looking back now. Right on. I'm going to ride into my 80s. He's going to ride into his 80s. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Ethan, seriously, man, thank you so much for coming in. I feel like I've learned so much about you and like I really have uh, enjoyed this, man. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right, so to honor that interview, I decided I'd go for a bike ride. So I'm currently biking on the South Island and I am almost at the end of the extreme end of the South Island at Gallon Point. I'm just making my way down the road here on a bike and it's a little sketchier trying to carry this recorder and bike with one hand than I thought it was going to be. Anyway, but uh, I had a really good time doing that interview. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Until next time.